This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, and today I feel so lucky that the amazing author, life coach, and all-around out-of-the-box spiritual thinker, Martha Beck, is back as my guest co-host. We're about to be joined by the New York Times bestselling memoirist of Broken Open and co-founder of Omega Institute, Elizabeth Lesser, who is promoting her latest memoir, Marrow, A Love Story. It's an intensely powerful and life-affirming book about being the perfect match for her sister's much-needed bone marrow transplant when in life, they were a lot more like a mismatch. Ah, therein lies the opportunity for healing. Elizabeth is a longtime friend of Martha's and a recent friend of mine. We hit it off at TED Women last week in San Francisco, where we were each speaking in the first session and bonded over our shared nerves and a late night rehearsal that gave us a kind of sisterhood courage, or maybe it was just exhaustion. (laughs) Either way, let's get this party started. I am so excited to keep learning from this beautiful, soulful woman who, like Martha, has a spirituality that's deeply rooted in science and is beloved by so many of our past guests and global leaders and thinkers. Thank you for sharing your time with us as we journey to dig deep and go for the light. I can't wait. Welcome. Martha, we meet again, Mama. You are becoming my partner in podcast crime here. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. I think we should instigate a plot to take over the world through podcasts. Yes. <laughs> well, that show that we did with Glennon was pretty takeovery. I mean, that was listened to by more people than I've ever talked to, that's for sure. And frankly, I was just talking to you and Glennon. And that's a funny thing. When you try to talk to a million people, they don't listen. And when you just like are jamming with your friends, everybody seems to feel the energy. So, woo! Oh my God. That's a really, really good point. All right. Well, I am so excited about our guest here today, Elizabeth Lesser. She's a new friend of mine. I know you've been friends for a long time, but oh my God, we just had so much fun together this past week. But I want to say that I'm obsessed with Marrow. So this book that Elizabeth has written, it's a love story and we'll talk all about it, but I'm pretty blown away and I can't wait to just jam with her about this. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. And you know, Elizabeth is quite the big cheese, so she doesn't make a deal of it. I know. Um, she doesn't act like it at all. I know. And she's assembled some of the most amazing people at Omega. Well, we can talk about that later, but yeah. I was just, uh, there's a lot going into this book. There's a lot to Elizabeth and it's an amazing story. So yay. <laughs> Elizabeth, are you there listening to us right now? I am. I'm just listening to you. I'm like, big cheese? What? <laughs> ah, okay. So that's melody. Yeah, I don't actually. No, I don't actually believe in big cheese. I really don't. It's kind of a disservice everybody does to each other. It's like we're all part of the same chunk of cheese. That's the way I look at it. It's not false humility. It's not false at all. I think it's actually true. It's mm. this idea that some of our lives are more big cheese-ish than others. I just I protest. You protest. Okay, but I have to say something funny about your popularity. Let's say that. So Elizabeth and I just did TED Women in San Francisco last week. And we're both just, you know, secret, secret, just between us friends. We're both still a little bit zombified from the experience because, oh, my God, it was stressful. But we'll get into that in a second. But Elizabeth, what's so funny about you is... You and I, I was trying to shepherd you away from the masses so that we could go practice, right? This is the night before. You and I were in the first session. There's six sessions, and we were in the first session, and I was like, Elizabeth, we should really go practice in your hotel room. She's like, yeah, we really should. Trying to get you away from all those people everywhere we were at dinner, everybody knew you, everybody wanted to talk to you. I was like, okay, follow me. Don't make eye contact. Don't look at anybody. (laughs) It was like, I felt like I was trying to usher out like Madam President. Uh Well, you know, Martha, how you started out saying that people want to listen when it's just friends talking. And when you try to talk to a million people, they don't listen. (laughs) I just think it's the same in life. Like, When you are just a human being bumbling your way through, people love that. It's a silly kind of aha, but this idea of trying to be something other than you are is such a turnoff, especially in our culture now, which is so celebrity obsessed. 
I'm just for people just kind of being yourself with all your glory and all your anxiety and just wearing it all out there. And somehow that makes people feel safe and at home and able to just be who they are in all their glory and their bumbling self. So that's the way I try to go through life. I totally agree. And most of those people, I think that were trying to get to you, Elizabeth, last week, they genuinely knew you and loved you because you have been facilitating this conversation, this bigger global spiritual conversation for so, so many years that you really do know a lot of people. I do. I do know a lot of people. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) And Martha, that's that, you know, like I religiously read your monthly Oprah pieces in O Magazine. And that's really what you say. You don't say anything other than what I just said. You know, you kind of give people the encouragement and freedom to know that locked inside each one of us is this golden self. And it's no more or less important than anyone else's. And that's why you're beloved as well. Well, I think that is absolutely true. There's no doubt in my mind that we are all one being and all of equal value. But I've had a lot of clients and like, I had a client in prison who really just wanted to go back to fighting dogs. I mean, creating dog fights. Oh, wow. I don't think if he just put himself out to the world that people would be drawn to that as much. Is he of equal value with you? Yes. Does he create the same thing in the world? No. (laughs) I mean, that's that's because he doesn't truly believe he's of equal value to everyone in the world. He feels he has to do something aggressive and from a sense of saving his ego. He's not actually truly believing in his core beauty. So yeah, you're totally right. The answer isn't just be yourself. And if your self is an asshole, no, no. There, It's retrieving that self that is radiant and beautiful and kind and big and gorgeous. So you're right. I agree with you, Martha. It's not as simple as just be yourself. We are in violent agreement. Okay. <laughs> So, Martha, I have a question for you. You did your TED Talk in what year? I have no idea. And, and, <laughs> and were you scared? Because you're a pretty seasoned public speaker and don't seem to get scared often, were you? Yeah, on my, I was fine. And then the, um, the technicals went wrong. The mic came loose and it started giving feedback and I had to stop and start and stop and start. So it was very disconcerting when it actually happened. And this is why I don't really remember it because I'm like, okay, that's behind me. It was, it was one of those things where things did not all work out smoothly and silkily. So it's not my favorite thing I've ever done. And yeah, I understand the pressure of it. It's intense. It was interesting because some of the, uh, most of the speakers, there were, I think, 65 speakers, right, Linda? Gosh, yeah, and, originally it was 40, but yeah, they, I think they just kept adding. I don't know if it was 65 yeah. or 55, but there were a lot. There were a lot, and you'd be backstage, and you'd be there with people like uh, the woman who just ran for president in Iceland and came in second, oh. or the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, and Nancy Pelosi, and an Olympic gold medalist. And these are all people who have faced enormous pressure. And Hala Thomasdottir, the woman who ran for president in Iceland just a few months ago, said to me, I just ran for president, and I was never this scared as giving a 12-minute TED Talk. (laughs) So you kind of felt in good company that you weren't just some kind of wimp like there's something about the TED stage that really evokes a lot of anxiety yeah for everybody I had the same experience Elizabeth when I was talking with people they said there was nothing there was no interview on television nothing that had ever sort of unnerved them like that stage Mm -hmm. well we did it Linda and we did a good job and it's over so now we can just be euphoric Yes, thank God in heaven. All right, so I would love to talk about this stunning book of yours, Elizabeth. Oh, my God. And this was the topic, Marrow, your book, was in large part the topic of your TED Talk. And it's this mesmerizing story of two sisters uncovering the depth of love through their life and death experience of a bone marrow transplant. Brene Brown calls it unforgettable. Liz Gilbert calls it transformative, important. Eve Ensler says it's a spiritual transfusion. Jane Fonda eloquently says it's about dying, but in fact teaches us how to live. 
you know, now that you've birthed this piece of art, how do you feel about it? Well, that's such a good question, Linda. I imagine both of you being authors know this feeling after you've finished a book and then it's been published and it's out there. It's an odd kind of combination of both a sense of pride of accomplishment because it's so hard to write a book and it's especially hard to write a memoir and to reveal so much of yourself, both your dirty laundry and your glory. So there's a sense of like pride and accomplishment, but there's also kind of a sense of, well, you know, you want it to do well and you want people to like it, but that's not really the point of writing a book. The point is to like answer the muse and get it out there. So I never know how to feel at this stage. It's out there. It has a life of its own. I actually relate to all of my books as like people who are out there in the world. They're not me anymore. So I feel both proud, but also what's next, you know, like the writing muse sits on the shoulder and and you think, really, already? I have to do this again already? (laughs) But there it is, because I've let that one go into the world. And I hope she touches people and helps people, but she's not mine anymore. Elizabeth, when did you decide in the experience that it was a book? When did that come to you? Because we all live through so many different things. And Were you writing in your head even as the experience unfolded, or did that come later? Well, that was so interesting because the book before Marrow, Broken Open, also is a memoir. And I had heard and I had experienced this in my writing life as well, that you really aren't ready to write about an experience until you've had five, six, seven years, you know, to really cook it and understand it and get some distance But this book I wrote as it was happening, and I did it for two reasons. One, you know, Broken Open was also a memoir, and it was a nice book, and then it was going along, and people were reading it, and then Oprah read it and had me on her show. It was still the Oprah show back then, and then it became a bestseller, and, you know, it was on the New York Times list, and that was my first experience of a book really taking off. So when Oprah started her Super Soul Sunday, she asked me to come on and I didn't have a book at that time. I was thinking of writing a book about the subject of authenticity, but I was having trouble writing it because authenticity is such a buzzword and it's kind of like, what's the difference between being a stingy little narcissist and being authentic? You know, and I was really having trouble how to frame what authenticity really means. So that's what we started talking about when I was on Super Soul Sunday. And I started talking about what I was going through with my sister. I had just been discovered as the match for my sister's bone marrow transplant, only 25% of siblings will match when someone needs a transplant for a blood cancer diagnosis. And I come from a family of four girls, and I was the only sibling who matched. And after siblings, if you don't get a sibling match, it's very hard to find a match in the large international bank. So I had just discovered I was a match, and I had just made this decision from my years at Omega and understanding mind-body medicine and having been a real student of it, a real student of what is the research into how we think and how we feel affecting how we heal. And uh, being a real believer based on fact in that, I realized that after the transplant, my sister might die if my cells once in her body attacked her or if her body rejected my cells. It's called rejection or attack. And I knew that my sister and I had a history of rejecting and attacking each other throughout our life as sisters. And I thought, I wonder if we could clean up our relationship. Would that affect ourselves? Could we actually teach ourselves to get along? And so I said that to Oprah on the Super Soul interview. And afterwards, she said to me, you know, that's a book. And when Oprah says, you know, that's a book, you kind of think maybe I should write this book. (laughs) And so I went back to be with my sister, who I ended up um, living with for, oh, on and off for a year as we were trying to help her heal after the transplant. 
And I said, you know, I want to write about this just to make sense of it in my own heart and also to see if, if we have something here that could instruct other people to clean up their relationships, not have to wait for a life and death situation. And she was very into it. And in fact, she wrote some and her words are in the book, too. And I thought it was going to be a happier ending. I thought the ending was going to be clean up your relationships and then, you know, she will live. Well, she didn't live, and I tell that at the beginning of the book, so it's not like a spoiler alert. But it turned out that the prize wasn't her living, but the prize was the love that both of us really magnified in the last year of her life. Well, and her saying that she felt like that last year, despite the fact that you were the woo-woo sister, you were the spiritual, you know, traipsing around sister and that was never an interest of hers but then through this therapy process she shifted so much and said it was the best year of her life Mm -hmm. yeah she did that is that is true so did I answer your question Martha um yeah that that answers it really beautifully it brought up something I wanted to ask you about too and I really wanted the audience to hear this because I love the mind-body medicine aspect of this book. The emotional story is the central story. But then there are all these interesting like little insights around the process of illness. Well, many processes. But what fascinated me was the story of how you increased your bone marrow. They, they give you these drugs that make your bones ache. And then you would, you would sit and, and meditate on these things. And it was going to take five occasions to harvest the enough cells. I think it was five. Could you tell that story? I I just really want that to go out to readers right away. Wow. Agreed. Yeah. Well, you know, we have, all of us have a trillion cells in us at all time. And, you know, you think of your body as just this constant you travel around in throughout life. But actually, at every moment, billions of cells are dying and being replaced. You know, your hair cells and your skin cells and your brain and your blood. There's this constant dance of life and death within you. Right now, as you're sitting here hearing this, like millions of cells are dying and millions of cells are being replaced. And what replaces them are the stem cells. And the stem cells live in your bone marrow. And when a person has a blood cancer, you want to kill off all their stem cells in the bone marrow because you don't want the cancer cells to continue to replicate. So a um, cancer patient gets this massive doses of chemotherapy that almost kill her, but she kills all the bone marrow. And they're replaced with millions of healthy cells. And that's what you want to get out of the donor. You want to get millions of healthy cells. And you need at least 5 million cells. I know that sounds like a huge amount, but when you see the little baggie that's finally taken out of the donor, it's just, it's a small amount of liquid, but it's millions of cells are in it. So they give you this stimulant that makes your stem cells in your bone marrow multiply way faster than they're supposed to. And so they spill out of the bones into your bloodstream so they can harvest them. They call it harvest, like it's a farm-to-table event, but it's um, not. It's like very painful. The most painful part is when your stem cells are duplicating faster than they usually do and pushing out of your bones, and you just ache with a kind of ache I can barely explain. It's like your body is exploding from the inside out. And you do that for five days, and then on the fifth day, you go into the hospital, and usually the process takes two days where they take your blood out of your body, the donor, and you sit there. You can't move for hours and hours and hours. You know, you have to pee into a bedpan, and nurses are all around you, and your blood is then spun in a centrifuge, and the stem cells are spun off. And it's amazing. They look like pulverized locks. They're bright orange, like a salmon orange color. And eventually, you get enough, 5 million or more, and they need that much to put into the poor patient who now has no bone marrow. So I did 
a lot of prayer and visualization. And I made up a prayer. And I made up a prayer based on my sister's love of maple syrup because she's from Vermont and was a maple syrup producer. So we did this prayer together about may my cells multiply like maple sap and become a syrup that keeps you sweet and alive. We had all this poetic prayer going on. And when I finally was hooked up to the apheresis machine that was going to take my blood and spin it, I only had to be on it for a little more than four hours. And I got something like 12 million cells. And they were all shocked. The nurses and doctors were like, what is going on with this person? You're like a cell machine. And actually, they took enough so that they were able to freeze it. And I'm now in the bone marrow bank. And maybe someone else will be able to use those cells as well. Thank you for telling that. I just wanted to add into that, that it's such an interesting and I don't want to, when I say Elizabeth is a big cheese, she is quick to contradict me. So, But it's really an interesting, positive story about practice, about how you had practiced things like meditation mm-hmm. and prayer and centering. And it shows, because she was not, your sister wasn't quite as able to create that enormous effect that you did. Yeah. Not anything against her, but it just kind of showed me that it's, the stuff that you've been doing in Omega, the stuff you've written about, the stuff you teach, the stuff you've done as a professional therapist, it's all, it works. It works. I think that's a great point in that, you know, we call it spiritual practice for a reason, the same way like if you play the piano and you practice the scales over and over and over, and it's so boring and like you're not practicing become a great scale player or like when my boys used to play basketball and they'd go outside and just bounce the ball over and over like you're practicing those things to become an artist or an athlete and when you do spiritual practice you're practicing the art of living living with potency and kindness and purpose you're practicing actually to get somewhere Uh, I kind of disagree with some of the more traditional Buddhist explanations of practice where it's like you have no goal. I disagree. I really do think that spiritual practice helps you become a better, kinder, more potent human being. And it's boring as hell at times. You know, people will say, I don't like to meditate. It's boring. I'm like, yeah, well, that's the point. That's what happens. You sit in meditation and you get so bored with your own mind you dip into a realm that's not controlled by your insane mind you kind of plug in to something more universal and vibrant but you gotta get super bored before you get there and that's what that practice is you know, but not just boredom, but the fact that your sister was in dire straits and that there was anxiety because you had this grounding when mm. suffering comes, it drives you more deeply into that realm. Tell me where I'm wrong here. No, so it's not you're suffering, right. Suffering too. Yes, it is suffering too. And it is, you're right. I mean, I was talking there, the boredom, just about the specific practice of meditation feeling boring. But once you kind of quiet the mind, you're face to face with the reality of human suffering of this realm we live in, of where in order to love, we have to lose. In order to grow, we have to break. Like it's spiritual practice wakes you up to the rules of life as a human being. It's like it's grounding in the reality of living here and stopping fighting what it means to be human, saying yes, like, yes, I join humanity and it's not easy but I'm going to do it with all my heart and soul and power and spiritual practice really helps you say yes to life and not some sort of like pretend garden you think it's supposed to be well and I think too Elizabeth in that practice you get so sort of tuned in or tapped in that I think you have access to other realms more easily. Like, for instance, when you were talking about your parents, 
So you're on the plane and you see your parents who are gone now and they're giving you this essence or this feeling that they're daring you to hope really, right? You've just been discovered to be the match, the perfect match to your sister. They're daring you to hope and you get this sense of that they're essentially saying to you that we loved you girls into being and now you can give your sister a second life. But that, but that comes from listening, right? And being present enough to feel that gossamer message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is like what you just asked me about, Martha, the more scientific aspect of the book and what, what Linda, you were just saying, the more kind of creative, imaginative, gossamer sense of ourself, spiritual imagination I love living in between those two parts of being human, that there is fact and there is rationality. And I love that. I love it. Science is so important to me. But also, if you only are kind of a dry scientist and you don't allow yourself into the more mythopoetic aspect of our heart and life, then you just kind of I just don't have as much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Martha, you're pretty good at tapping into those other realms. And yet it's not really, the interesting point about this book is it's not about what we think it's about. You know, initially it's about, well, my sister can get well now. And the point is we're going to extend our physical lives as long as possible. and And what you see, what I feel in practice is that, it's never about that. It's about waking up. And if you do have experiences of encountering people who've passed away, or if you have a vision or whatever it is, it's not about that. It's about you waking up in this human experience. It's what Elizabeth was just saying. It's about, yes, it's all a game, but you're here to play it. Now play it with the knowledge that it's a game. Right. And then magical, miraculous things happen, but they are not the actual point. I don't know. Elizabeth had a, Help me if I'm going way off course here. No, I love that. And it's such a hard thing to put into words because the words really get in the way of what you're just trying to say. But I mean, all three of us are wordsmiths, so that's what we're paid to do, to bring the inevitable through words. And I think you said it beautifully, Martha, when you said, it's all a game, but we're here to play it. So some people, when they feel it's all a game, there's a sense of like, then why should I play it if it's all a game? But it also isn't all a game. It's damn serious. And there are real repercussions for what you do or you don't do. And also, when you get into that higher state of consciousness that humans can do and that spiritual practice allows you to peer beyond the game, beyond the goalposts, then it's not that you think, why should I play this silly human game? It's more that you see, wow, what a privilege and oddity and amazing thing that I get to be human for this brief wink of time. I know it's for something. I don't exactly know what, but I sense that we have a responsibility to live this gift beautifully, and I'm going to give it a try, even though it's just a game. When I say it's a game, I don't really mean like cards or like tiddlywinks or something. I mean like these gorgeous universes that people create online now where my kids like to go in and explore. It's something so beautiful and so adventurous. And you're right, it is very serious. But when you understand that the end of the game is just another version of joy, And that you can, I don't even know, this is what I sense too, but it's all about spiritual practice that you start to, that's my point, that you start to see from a calmer, more peaceful place, whatever happens. And that's what I love about your book. It starts out hoping that she'll live, even though she didn't. And then it goes into that deeper realm where the point is not exactly the date upon which we die but the way in which we form our lives. Yes. Yes. And that's what I got out of the book. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I'm sure people get all sorts of things out of it, and maybe you have 
some more questions about that, Linda, or I could say a few things. Yes, yes. Please tell me whatever it is you want to say. Well, one, just one thing I'll say quickly, and I'd love to hear what you have to say on this, Martha, is that part of the book is this idea that you don't have to wait for a loved one to almost die to attempt to clean up a relationship, whatever that would mean to you. And a lot of people will come up to me now at readings or events and say, do I have to clean up my relationship with my father who abused me? Or do I have to, I tried with my brother, but he won't even talk to me. And I think, I hope I explain in the book well enough that some people do not want to play the open and forgiveness game, part of the human game. Some right. people aren't ready to. Some people are threatened by it. Some people are not awake enough to do it. I think it never hurts to try. I'm all for erring in the direction of connection wherever you can and being like I call it a new kind of first responder like the one who takes the first step into the fire of authentic relationship. Mm. But you may get in there and find out that this person is too hot a flame. It's not going to work. And it's okay. That doesn't mean you failed. Some people won't play that with you. So I always feel I need to put that caveat out. Oh, that's good. That's good. And, and it can be so surprising, like you said. I mean, I never in a million years expected my ex-husband to be open to playing that game after our divorce. And he just absolutely shocked and amazed me. I think as you discovered with Maggie, your sister, in the, in the process that you two went together with therapy, you actually don't know how it will go. None of us are able to see the spiritual heart and intentions of another person. Yeah. And we make all sorts of assumptions. We assume way more than we ever have the guts to just interrupt that assumption making. And that's the most shocking and surprising and beautiful thing about at least trying. I would say more often than that, you find out that what you thought about that person and what happened to you both is a story in your head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Only always. Only always. Only always. Okay. Only always. I love that. Oh my God. I love it. Or 60% of the time, every time, although that doesn't fit. Okay, so I have a thought. Dude, can we just talk about Sally Field for a minute? I mean, how in the heck? So I always get a book in print. I get it on Kindle, and I get it audio. I like to be, I'm visual, and I'm auditory, and I like to just have the whole shebang. So, you know, I'm reading it, and then I think, oh, I'm going to listen to the download now. And then I hear Sally and, I, you know, I did a cover story on her years ago. I'm a huge fan, as are most people. How did that happen? Well, I used to organize a conference at Omega every year called Women and Power. We still do it. I'm just not as involved anymore. And I started it probably 12 years ago. I thought, I'm, I like to create conferences around uncomfortable conversations. Like, <laughs> what makes people uncomfortable? Let's talk about it. And so I put the words women and power together. Now, this was, things move so fast in culture now. So back 12 years ago, putting those two words together made people very uncomfortable, women and power. And I just called the conference Women and Power. And I invited some speakers. And I thought I would just do one conference. But it really took off. That first year, I had Eve Ensler and... Anita Hill, and a few other people just talking about what happens when a woman decides, I want to stand in my power. Can we do power differently? And what is that like? And so over the years, it just really grew. And Martha, you've spoken at it. And I invited Sally Field. And, you know, sometimes you just meet someone and you think like, Oh my God, where have you been all my life? We're like sisters. And as you noted, I've met a lot of people in my life, but there was something about meeting Sally where the two of us just felt like separated at birth. And we became very, very dear friends and have remained so. So when she was one of my readers, my early readers of Marrow, and she asked if she could read it. She really loved it. So I was so happy about that and she gave it her all 
it was almost like the experience I just described about having my bone marrow extracted. She sat in that studio. She read for like four days. She wanted it to be perfect. She's an incredible hard worker. You know, talk about spiritual practice. People look at actors, are great actors, and think, well, I guess they were just born with that chip. No, she works so hard at what she does. Yeah, you could tell. And you actually have a similar voice. So it was beautiful. It made me wonder, Martha, Martha, you know, I've heard you narrate some of your books and others you've had somebody else do that. How do you make that decision, Martha? Uh, I think it was made for me by my publishers. I yeah. uh, heard that I have a voice like someone trying to clean a toilet with a live raven. Uh, <laughs> so what? Kind of not always my choice. <laughs> Whereas Elizabeth has a great speaking voice, so there you go. No, but I like doing my own because I can put my own inflection in, and then I'm yeah. always thrilled if someone else with a better voice does it. That's There's no sophistication in it for me. It's just that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, before we go into our intermission, I would love, love, love to ask you about the telecourse that blew up the internet. So when Oprah decided to do A New Earth with Eckhart Tolle, she called you, and you're the mm-hmm. one who wrote the workbook, and I think I heard that you went every week to Chicago. Is that right? Did you fly to Chicago every week to work on that? Yes, I did for like four and a half months. Oh, my God. Yeah. What? In the middle of winter. <laughs> O'Hare Airport. Did you have any idea that it was going to be the hit that it was? No. No, of course not. And by the way, I didn't know Oprah. Like, I didn't know Oprah the way... Most people don't know Oprah. It was actually driving home from work one day, and my cell phone rang, and I answered it, and it was someone saying, hi, this is Oprah, and I thought it was my best friend pretending to be Oprah. And so she had chosen A New Earth, Eckhart Tolle's book, for her book club. It was the first and only time she chose for the book club a nonfiction spiritual book. And she chose a book that she knew was pretty sophisticated and perhaps many of her readers and listeners and viewers would need some help getting through it so she decided to create an an online webinar which at that point was brand new people were not doing this these online teleconferences it was the first of its kind on that scale and in fact the whole skype company came over from europe and like took up residence at harpo in chicago to try to see if this was even possible for people to Skype in from around the world. So she called me because someone had said, this is a person who knows how to take spiritual books and turn them into curriculum. Because I've been doing it at Omega for years. You know, I would read a book and get in touch with an author and say, could you come and teach this? And many authors are like, I don't teach. I'm a writer. And most authors are authors because they don't like to be in front of people. They do it through sitting all alone in a room. So I've had a lot of experience through helping authors create curriculum and teach. So that's what Oprah was calling me for. And I said, yes, it sounded extraordinary. And I started going out there once a week. I would meet with Eckhart Tolle for hours and get to the bottom of what each chapter was about. And then we'd meet with Oprah and figure out what questions to ask. And then I would rush back and write stuff. And then at some point, Oprah said to me, uh, we need to have a radio show. She had a serious XM radio show at the time. We need to follow up the TV show, the online Skype extravaganza that like 15 million people were calling into every week. And we need to have a radio show afterwards because some people are only getting it through the radio. And then she said, and I know just who I want to be the radio host. I was like, oh, great idea. Who? You, she says to me. I'm like, I don't know how to be a radio host. What are you talking about? She's like, oh, no, we'll teach you. We'll teach you. We'll train you. I'm like, okay, when? Tonight. (laughs) No pressure. Uh, That was also so fantastic. To It was kind of like four or five months of crazy wildness out of my life. And it was fantastic. Okay, I'm going to do a quick intermission. Pretend you have to prepare for one gig 30 days from now. 
You know it's going to go viral. Are you going to take the TED stage for a third time or sit with Oprah again under the oaks? Uh, no, that's like a Sophie's choice. That's not fair. Well, no, no, no. I'm not saying you have to pick one for the rest of time. I'm saying this is in the next 30 days and you know it's going to go viral. Well, I guess I would do the TED because I just did it. And there's something about honing what you believe into 15 minutes and saying it over and over and over till you just think you're the stupidest person on the planet and none of the words even make sense. But it's an amazing experience to like really intellectually hone what you mean to say. It's very hard to say what you mean in a way that millions of people will understand. So I enjoyed, uh, enjoy is the wrong word. It's like saying I enjoyed lying on a bed of nails, but it really taught me a lot about what I truly believe. Yeah. Yeah. Ditto. Okay. East coast or West coast? East coast. An hour of meditating or an hour of hiking outside? Hiking outside. When you waste time, what are you doing? Online shopping. (laughs) What's your favorite TV guilty pleasure? I love Shameless. Oh, God, my girlfriend is one of the creators of that and the head writer. Okay, so when you write, are you on your computer or sitting with pen and paper? Computer all the way. And as a middle-ager who looks younger than your years, what's your best beauty secret? Love. Oh, and Martha, you too, baby. Ageless Martha, what's your best beauty secret? A fencing mask is your all-purpose accessory (laughs) (laughs) on the day you can't get it together. Can you start making them and selling them in, like, different fabrics and colors? I want one. (laughs) I'll put that in my little list of things to do. I want to ask you about getting your first book deal, which I'm interested in. I'm even more interested in why you decided to become a writer. And I know you're a scholar and a therapist and a whole bunch of other things, but I'm one of those people who does sit in the woods alone and write. And um, I'm fascinated by how you come to that before anyone gives a darn about whether you put a word on paper or not. And you're just sort of out there walking through bookstores going, no one needs another one of these, but I I need to make one. How did that happen for you? Well, I definitely was one of those little kids who, like, always wrote, always wrote in journals, always entered writing contests, you know, loved everything, was a little poet, and kind of didn't even know what I thought or felt unless I wrote it. So I always was like that and was someone who I loved poetry as a kid and just loved words, like just words were like food. So I was very young when I started Omega Institute. I was just 21 and it wasn't what it is now. It, you know, it's a conference center now that it's huge and attracts 30,000 people a year kind of thing. But that's not what it was, of course, when we started it. And so the first 10 years of it, it was a lot of really new information coming into the culture mind-body medicine, different forms of psychotherapy, yoga, meditation, food as medicine, all these new concepts that were so far out. And I I don't know why I have this interesting, I feel challenged all the time to take big thoughts and complicated seeming philosophies and make them possible for the every person. It just feels it just feels like a calling. Like to me, most of wisdom is pretty simple. And then people dress it up in incredibly fancy and academic terms. And it's I feel maybe it serves some people, but it's a disservice to most people to make these helpful healing concepts uh, shrouded in complication. It just I, it just kind of bugs me. So. My first book, The Seeker's Guide, I wanted to take these concepts that I'd been so privileged to be in the center of as a young person and make them like some help people through this maze of healing and transformational work, like make it less mystifying and turn it into like practices that can really help your real 
life. So that's what I wanted my first book to be. And it's big and kind of bulky and it could have used a lot of editing. And But that is how I did my first book. And I actually, unlike the other two, because I was so young and filled with young hubris, I never had that thought like, the world does not need another book. I just had that youthful like, I'm going to write this book. Everybody needs this book. It is not what happened with the next two, which was more like, why am I writing this? Oh, my God, there's 8,000 books just like it that are probably better. And I got hit with that a little later on. Yeah, I've never read a book even remotely close to this one, ever. Just so you know. So what is your most most beautiful publishing experience so far? Um, This one, Marrow, my editor at HarperCollins, I had never had this experience before where an editor absolutely believes in what you're doing and all of her insight helped the book and her team is so supportive. I did not have that experience with the first two. It was more like what most authors kvetch about all the time. You know, like the industry is all about just purchasing a book and then they absolutely neglect you and never help you get it out there. And editors are just line editors now and they don't really do it with their heart. My first books were like that, but this one, I had a golden experience. I can't believe it. I'm filled with gratitude for it. It was Karen Rinaldi, right? Correct. Yeah. She's an extraordinary person, and I love her. Elizabeth, I've written two memoirs. One was about my son with Down syndrome. One was about my experience leaving Mormonism, and it was not easy. It was so not easy that the last book I wrote instead of memoir, I made it a novel. I'm just like, let's call it fantasy fiction and be done. So that's sort of where I've gone with it because that experience is really intense and you have to be up for it. And I was wondering how that was for you writing Marrow. Yeah, memoir is terrifying. I know that that's my calling, but I really, really resisted it this time tremendously. Broken Open, the book before Marrow, is about how difficult times help you grow. And I wrote mostly about going through divorce and single parenting. And that was really, really hard. And I felt I never want to write a memoir again, ever, never going to do that. And like you, I tried to write a novel. I was in the middle of writing a novel when I turned to writing Marrow. I wanted to write about authenticity. And so I decided to write a novel and the main character was a woman running for higher office trying to maintain an authentic sense of self and i like really sorry i never finished that novel it kind of was very pleasant (laughs) but yet i didn't have the chops to write fiction like my agent when he read the first draft of that novel said well, it's okay, but your dialogue sounds like a stilted civics lesson. And I was like, ouch, that was harsh. <laughs> so I still maybe would like to try, but uh, when it came time to write Marrow, and, you know, as I said earlier on in this interview, my main philosophy in life is that all humans share the same struggle and the same joys, which is why I don't believe in the big cheese. I just knew that I was going to have to put a lot in about the painful parts about my sister and my relationship and things about my family members. That's a real terror of of writing memoir to me, not revealing about myself. I don't care. I'm complete open book about myself, but it's dragging your family members in. That's Mm -hmm. really dicey and painful and difficult and It's a fine line between just revealing everything and then ruining relationships, which I refuse to do, and then also not being truthful. And then, you know, there's nothing worse than those Christmas cards that people send out with the letters about how fantastic everything is in their life and their (laughs) Italian villa they rented and their kids are all in Ivy League schools and everything's so great. You know, a memoir like that is just, just not a contribution. But it's a fine line between making everything rosy and telling every single truth. That's the chiseling when writing a memoir. 
Well, you did a wonderful job of this. I hope your family is happier with you than mine is with me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, how did that work out? We've talked with Martha in the past about how her family, with Glennon, we talked about how her family felt about leaving the Saints, but uh, very different, I'm imagining, than how your sisters felt about Meryl. Well, Broken Open actually was more, uh, had more fallout with my family. You know, the story of of a divorce is a hard thing to tell without expecting some kind of fallout. Marrow, what happened with Marrow that is pretty amazing is that it brought me and my older sister into a kind of divine relationship is all I can say. Like, it was so hard going through the loss of our sister together, and it brought up a lot of stuff between us, but we were love warriors together. We went through it, and I would say I have the most solid thing with her. It's a joy. With my younger sister, and some of the book, especially toward the end, is about my relationship with her. And we went into the experience not in a very good place, and we came out of it in a better place, but more than anything, and I think this is an important thing to say when you talk about cleaning up relationships. We came into truth. And one of the truths for us was that we probably weren't going to have the kind of really close friendship that I wanted. And I made peace with that without making her wrong or me wrong. So sometimes cleaning up a relationship is a clarifying process. This is what I'm capable of. This is what I want. This is what I'm capable of. This is what I want. And and just sort of a standing tall with a lot of integrity together. And it's not exactly what you thought it was going to be. So I would say with those two, the memoir process had a very positive ending. And some really surprising things has happened. My sister Maggie, who died her ex-husband, who she um, had so much pain with. He and I had dinner together recently. We hadn't talked in years. And we had the most beautiful meeting of the souls. I would say if that's the only thing that came out of this book, I would feel I had done something really good. So this was a very successful memoir experience. Not so much so with the other book. Elizabeth, at the end of Marrow, you're on the phone with a dear friend who's helping you make sense of a dream you had about Maggie, and she tells you she thinks it's time to swim to shore, to walk in the world, and to live the heck out of this life. How do you feel like you're doing with that right now? I feel like I'm doing that, and I feel that had I not written the memoir and gotten to that last page and that last understanding Yes, I'd be trying to live my best life, which I always have. But I feel the act of writing this really did kick it up a notch for me. And that's the power of writing for me. First of all, I'll always remember things which I otherwise would have forgotten because I forget everything. So writing about an intense experience is like a memory booster. But also, yes, I do feel I'm walking with my sister's soul linked with mine. We shared our blood, we shared our marrow, and then we did what I call in the book our soul marrow transplant. And that's forever. That's forever. And I do feel that she's with me and helping me walk strong in the world. Beautiful. So would you have any advice for somebody out there who's living an experience that's intense and maybe terrifying And they're having that feeling of wanting to share with the world, but they don't have your confidence in just putting it out there. Are there any words you would share with those people? You mean writing it? Writing it or, you know, doing, creating something like you created the Omega Institute. But, you know, this is, I think a lot of Linda's audience is writers, but you've done so much more with your life and all of it required this confidence Mm -hmm. um, that most people do not have. And you write eloquently about how Maggie talk to you about seeing you that way you you're really a figurehead for her so what can you tell others about how to have your confidence well the best way 
to say, and I, I'll give this a try. I don't know if it's going to work. Is you know, there's this incredible meditation practice, like you see in religious iconography, Buddha statues, or Joan of Arc on her horse, or Mary sitting there tall, like in her veiled face, but her heart is that like flame. You know, those pictures of her. In all of those religious iconography, you have this being with a very straight back. Like imagine yourself sitting on a horse. Let's just be Joan of Arc right now. So she has a strong... This before the fire, right? Yeah. <laughs> before she's burned at the stake. Yeah. Just right. check. Yeah. She's got this very strong back, but her heart is open and she's so vulnerable. And the same with the Buddha. He's got a strong back and a big fat belly that's all like relaxed and gushy. And that to me is the essence of creative courage. You develop this straight back, this sense of, I belong here. I'm riding through my kingdom on my horse with a straight back. I am noble and dignified. I belong here. But before you get to like full of yourself, and get turned into an asshole, you keep your chest open and soft and your belly soft. So you can support that vulnerability with your strong back. And you can not turn into an arrogant person with your soft front. So I would say that's the essence of true courage, not phony courage that leads to aggression and violence. True courage to me is the root of the word courage, which is heart, core. It's a soft heart with a strong backbone. So whatever you can do to strengthen your backbone and whatever you can do to keep yourself open and vulnerable together is, um, to me, the essence of courage. Oh, God, that's so beautiful. I can't even wrap my mind around how beautiful that was. I'm going to have to listen to it three times. And it perfectly goes into my last question. You know, one of my favorite lines from Mero is this one. As time goes on, as she becomes less of this earth and more of eternity, this is what I remember most of my sister, her essence. So I want to close by asking you both, and I'll start with Martha. What do you want mm -hmm. people to remember of your essence? Comfort. Oh, comfort. That is so beautiful. I don't even want to go next. I'm sorry, you have to go next, Elizabeth. Can I say comfort? No. Um, yes, of course you can. <laughs> um, what kind of divine humor? That it's both really funny and fun, but also like serious and for real. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I think that mine is grounded optimism. Nice. But I vote for comfort. <laughs> like macaroni and cheese comfort. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so good. I, what? I High butterfat comfort, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, like, or like the bag of organic Reese's peanut butter cups I ate in the airport at 2 a.m. when my plane was late after Ted and I was a zombie. That was so comforting. <laughs> yeah, I like the carbs and the butter more than the sugar. Mm. That's what Martha is to me, like pasta with butter sauce. There you go. That is what I want people to remember of me. <laughs> so you nailed it again. Pasta <laughs> with butter sauce. That's you, Martha. Oh, I love you girls. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this on this beautiful rainy Sunday. I'm just, my heart is so full. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me here. And Elizabeth, thanks for your book. Yeah. yeah. Love you, Martha. Thank you, love. And you, Linda, my new friend. Mm, oh, so much fun. fun. Oh, God. Yeah, fun. <laughs> it was so ridiculously much fun. I'm so grateful. Thanks to Ted. Head women. All right. All right. Okay. Love, love. Until next time. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye, everyone. Okay. It was hard to push stop on that recording. I could have asked those two questions all day. 
To learn more about Mero, this visionary writer, the Omega Institute, or for information on Elizabeth's past or latest TED Women Talks, go to elizabethlesser.com. And of course, you can find Martha Beck and info on her books, programs, and her latest amazing novel, Diana Herself, over at marthabeck.com. For updates on future shows, be sure and sign up for my bi-monthly newsletter over at bookmama.com, where you can also see videos on joining me at a writing retreat in stunning Carmel-by-the-Sea, or other ways I can support you from idea to done with your future bestseller. And a super monster big thanks if you've already left us five stars or comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. It's all super appreciated. Now go make your art, okay? Promise? Until next time, write on. Write on.